in a particular version, Native American First People teaching story. If we want to grow inner strengths, how do we actually do that? So this woman was asked toward the end of her life, Grandmother, how did you become so happy? What did you do? Also, how did you become so wise, so effective, so loved? What did you do? She paused. She reflected for a bit. She said, you know, I think it's because when I was young, I realized that in my heart were two wolves, one of love and one of hate. And even more importantly, I realized when I was young that everything depended upon which one I fed each day. So we have there both the wolf of love and the wolf of hate, including the fact that in almost every heart, certainly my own, is the capacity, metaphorically represented by the wolf of hate, for ill will, aggression, uh, prejudice, uh, hatred, rage, even violence and war. Okay? And also, really fundamental to our purpose, is the possibility and the responsibility that has to do with the fact that one way or another, we're continually feeding one wolf or the other. Right? Which wolf will you feed? The wolf of hate or the wolf of love? So for our purposes here, how do we feed the wolf of love? How do we grow love, broadly defined in our heart, as well as other inner strengths and other wholesome qualities? Well, if you think about it, this is a fundamental question in practice. How do you grow the good stuff inside yourself? especially in the face of modern world, life, uh, and the brain. Well, this is a kind of list of some major Buddhist inner strengths, broadly defined. Things like mindfulness, conviction, uh, investigation. The list on the left are the uh, seven factors of awakening, mindfulness, investigation, energy, bliss, tranquility, concentration, and equanimity. Right? There are also the uh, four uh, divine abodes, or the Brahma-viharas, the immeasurables, of equanimity, compassion, uh, loving-kindness, and happiness at the welfare of others. And then, of course, we have strengths embedded in the Noble Eightfold Path that are not already listed here, like developing wise view, wise intention, wise effort. And then, uh, to call out a few, there are some um, other factors of awakening, or the perfections, the paramis, qualities such as conviction, generosity, or patience. Buddhist practice is about cultivating these in ourselves. And of course, other paths are about developing these as well. In more psychological terms, inner strengths include traditional virtues, some of which you've already seen, like patience or generosity, things like energy, uh, grit. I think about all those Boy Scout mottos I took, something thrifty, brave, clean, and reverent. That's about all I remember. Clean, you know, they must have understood they were dealing with teenage boys. But anyway. <laughs> so executive functions like impulse control, metacognition, being able to think about thinking, pay attention to attention, that kind of stuff. Attitudes, optimism, uh, openness, confidence, capabilities like emotional intelligence, right? Or resilience, positive emotions uh, are really a major source of physical and mental health over time. Positive emotions, of course, including things like happiness as well as gladness, gratitude, or what's called sometimes eudaimonic well-being, a global sense of meaning and purpose in your life. Uh, approach orientation, a leaning toward opportunity uh, rather than a shrinking away from threat, 
uh, also is a kind of inner strength. Okay? These are inner strengths. These are good things. We need these inner strengths to have equanimity uh, you know, when the oatmeal starts to fly. Okay? Inner strengths in a natural frame are built out of brain structure. Okay? So the question is, how do we get them in the brain? Right? Here's where it gets really interesting. Inner strengths are traits, stable, enduring qualities, standing waves okay? in a person, either latent and ready to be activated or operational, enacted. Traits, for better or worse, are grown from states, mental states, momentary feelings or perspectives, sensations in the body, inclinations, enactments or behavior. Traits are grown from states. In other words, to use the language of the neuropsychology of learning, and which includes personal growth and emotional development and character development and progress down the path of awakening, that progress, that development, proceeds in a two-stage way, from activation to installation. The brain is not like in the movie The Matrix or like an iPod where you jack the cable in and you just transfer the file and suddenly Neo can do Kung Fu or is the world's greatest lover. They never show that part in The Matrix. But anyway, um, the brain's not like that. The brain's more like it's an old school tape recorder or a modern VCR. You record it by playing it. We have to activate the state to install it in the brain. Well, this has a profound implication. If we want to grow the trait of loving kindness, we need to have more states of loving kindness. If we want to grow the trait of mindfulness, we need to have more mindful moments. If we want to grow the trait inside of determination or the uh, commitment to speak truth to power, we need to have more moments in which we feel that which are installed in the brain. Okay, So two key takeaways here. Takeaway number one, positive traits are occasionally developed through negative experiences, but primarily positive traits are grown through an experience of that trait or a related factor. Happiness, broadly defined, is skillful means. The second takeaway is that without installation, there might be a momentary pleasantness, but there's no growth, there's no learning, there's no lasting value. I think that this is the fundamental weakness in many psychotherapies, many uh, mindfulness trainings, many human resources trainings, many forms of character education. We're good at activating useful mental states, but we don't pay much attention to installing them in the brain through, as I'll teach in a moment, some very well-understood ways to promote learning. Okay? Now, there is a place for negative experiences. This goes to the thing that you asked or commented on uh, at the very beginning here. Uh, about how do we be with our pain in a way that's wise, right? If we go negative on negative, we just have more negative. If we go to war with the unpleasant, if we resist the unpleasant, that itself is unpleasant and it perpetuates the unpleasant. There's that old saying, what you resist persists, right? We need to do more of the, like the jujitsu, uh, the Aikido, with our own experience. 
And I think also there are certain life lessons that are only acquired through negative experiences. You know, you don't know in your heart that you'll do the hard thing until you've done the hard thing. And then you know you'll actually do the hard thing. You know, there's certain experiences I've had in rock climbing or wilderness or in situations with people that develop me in various ways. And there's no other way I would have gotten that kind of inner strength from going through that experience. Okay. Uh, there's um, um, research on things like stress hardiness, that, we, that through stress we become more able to tolerate stress. Okay. On the other hand, negative experiences always have collateral damage. In, they're, by definition, unpleasant. And also they stress the body and, you know, over time, stress is not good for long-term mental and physical health. It's also legitimate to inquire, could I have gotten this lesson? Could I have grown this inner strength? Could I have developed this wholesome quality in my heart? Could I have deepened in my insight without paying the price of that negative experience? Could I have acquired that same benefit through a positive experience? And, as I've said earlier, a primary path for the development of positive traits is to have experiences of positive traits, which are positive experiences and related factors. It's also the case that our brain has this negativity bias that makes it very good at learning from the bad and relatively bad at learning from the good, as I said earlier. The reason the brain has the negativity bias that, as I put it, makes it like Velcro for negative experiences but Teflon for positive ones is that as our ancestors evolved and had to get carrots and avoid sticks, if you fail to get that carrot today, that food, that mating opportunity, you'll probably have a chance at one tomorrow. But if you fail to avoid that stick today, that predator, that aggression inside your band or between bands, no more carrots forever. So the brain today has this bias in which it continually scans for bad news. When it finds it, it isolates down upon it and loses context. The brain overreacts to the negative. For example, if you pay, play two sounds for people that are equally loud, but one is a pleasant sound, like a bell ringing, the other is an unpleasant sound, like the sound of an alarm clock or a fire alarm, the brain will react more to uh, the unpleasant sound. And fourth step, the brain takes that whole package, scanning for the negative, isolating down upon it, overreacting to it, and then fast-tracking it into emotional storage. Once burned, twice shy. Never forget. That's why, you know, if 10 things happen in a day with someone who's important to you, that maybe you work with or live with or sleep with, or all three in my case, right? (laughs) 10 things happen, nine are positive, one's negative. What's the one you think about as you're falling asleep, right? We remember negative information about others more than positive information, a major reason why political ads tend to go negative. Uh, In relationships, a lot of research shows that negative interactions have more impact than positive ones, so we need to have a ratio uh, that's higher, two, three, five, ten times as many positive interactions than negative ones. That's a cautionary tale. I was in grad school and I came across that finding and like woke me up to my to relationship from my wife's point of view. What a concept. Um, in the brain, there's this uh, process whereby negative experiences today make uh, sensitize the brain. 
Negative experiences, frustration, irritation, loneliness, loss, multitasking, being bombarded with stimuli more than we can handle. Ah, You know, that right there, feeling frazzled, activates the same ancient neurohormonal machinery that evolved to get our ancestors away from charging lines back in the Serengeti. That machinery is locked and loaded today when we're arguing with someone. Okay? Well, when we're stressed or activated, releases cortisol, goes up into the brain, cortisol sensitizes the alarm bell of the brain, the amygdala, and cortisol overstimulates and gradually kills neurons in another part of the brain, the hippocampus, that puts things in perspective, and the hippocampus calms down the amygdala. It inhibits amygdala activity. And the hippocampus tells the hypothalamus, another part of the brain, quit calling for stress hormones. Enough cortisol already. All right? You can see the one-two punch in the vicious cycle. Stress today, releasing cortisol, incrementally sensitizes that amygdala, that alarm bell, and weakens the controls upon it, which means the brain is more sensitized and reactive to stress the day after, which then in that vicious cycle makes it really vulnerable to stress and upset the day after that. There's no comparable mechanism of positive sensitization, another example of the brain's negativity bias. So, what are we going to do about this? You know, In effect, the negativity bias functions today like a big bottleneck sucking those little red balls of negative experiences into the brain while the green balls kind of bounce out. Positive experiences don't get readily transferred into long-term storage. If you think about it, in the two-stage process, activation to installation, a lot of research shows that experiences or information in general is held in a short-term memory buffer and then transfers to long-term storage that information or experience needs to be held in a short-term buffer long enough to start sifting down into storage, to start getting encoded, to begin the encoding process of weaving that useful experience into the fabric of the brain and therefore your life. Well, what do we do with positive experiences? We might be having one mildly pleasant experience after another, punctuated with many neutral ones, but how often, how long, how often do we stay with that positive experience more than a few seconds in a row? How often do we kind of marinate in it, protect it, preserve it, sustain it, concentrate on it, become absorbed in it for 10, 20, 30 seconds in a row so it has a chance to start transferring out of short-term buffers into long-term storage? We don't routinely do that, do we? We might be having one positive experience after another, but the new incoming one dislodges the current one before it has a chance to sift down into storage. And that's particularly true if our temperament is at all spirited, so we're always looking for the next thing, or we grow up in an increasingly ADD-ish culture where we're always bombarded with the next thing and become habituated to a high level of stimulation, so we're always seeking the next thing ourselves before the current thing has a chance to sink down. That's the fundamental problem. Negative experiences transfer immediately to storage. They're privileged. Once burned, twice shy. 
right? Whereas positive experiences, unless they're million-dollar moments, use standard-issue memory systems where they need to be held in those short-term buffers long enough. They need to be activated long enough so they can actually get installed in emotional, somatic, motivational memory. It's a fundamental matter in terms of developing ourselves. The negativity bias of the brain was adaptive for life in Stone Age conditions, and even very adaptive in the 10,000 years since you know agriculture and the domestication of animals have come in. And even today, in a, on a battlefield, or in a home that's like a battlefield, uh, there's a place for the negativity bias, for over-learning from our negative experiences and over-generalizing from them. But in the everyday life, certainly of many, many people, uh, with obviously many unfortunate exceptions, but in the everyday, kind of okay, minimally, life of many, many people today, perhaps most people in the developed countries of the world, uh, the negativity bias functions as a kind of well-intended universal learning disability <laughs> you know, that makes it difficult for us to grow the inner strengths and learn from our positive experiences which impairs our capacity to grow the resources inside, the calm, the steadiness, the optimism, the sense of being entitled to our own truth, the sense of being entitled to speak up in tough relationships, and other resources. This negativity bias, this bottleneck, slows down the development of these fundamental positive resources inside ourselves. What can we do? We can deliberately take in the good. I have a lot of material about this. This is just the quickie about it, and then we'll do a little practice with this. Okay? So if you think about it, what, I, what I've tried to do is take tons of research on the neuropsychology of learning, especially emotional learning. You know, the life learning that's really at the heart of cultivating good, you know, wholesome, useful, beneficial qualities inside ourselves. Uh, what does that neuropsychology of learning say? It says that learning proceeds in two stages, activation and installation. It says that without installation, there's only activation and no lasting value. And that neuropsychology says there are things you can do to intensify the installation process. So I summarize all that with the acronym HEAL. Have a positive experience, a useful, beneficial experience in the first place. Usually because you notice you're already having it. Right? Sometimes because you deliberately create it. You might deliberately create the feeling of being cared about or deliberately create some gratitude or deliberately create a sense of determination inside by calling upon kind of the body memory of pulling over an overhang and rock climbing, as I'll do, if I really need to assert myself in a tricky situation. Okay? There's a place for the deliberate activation of beneficial states of mind. Sometimes that gets a bad name in certain circles. But there's a place for deliberately calling forth resources, okay? invoking them. Then to, add, to install, E for enrich, there are five well-known factors that heighten learning. You can use one or more of them. The primary one is duration. The longer those neurons are firing, the more they're going to be wiring. The more time you can give this experience, the more it can transfer out of short-term buffers to long-term storage. Also, intensity, second factor of enriching. You know, the more intensely those neurons fire, the more they wire. So letting the experience grow, opening to it, uh, letting it fill your mind, 
Even if it's a subtle experience, it can pervade the mind. Third factor of enriching is multimodality. You want to try to feel it in your body, open to it emotionally. There is a place for internalizing uh, thoughts, beliefs, perspectives, wise view. Somewhere in my 20s, I realized that growing up, I had been a nerd, not a wimp. That is a useful thought, right? <laughs> Especially for a guy. I was president of the dork club, that's for sure. But I was not a wimp, all right? But on the whole, you know, what we really want to internalize are richly um, sensate experiences in the body, bodily states of activation, the feeling in the body of compassion, the feeling in the body of self-worth, you know, a feeling uh, of value, of, of recognizing that you're a good person. Not a perfect person, but a good person. What's that feel like? These are the kinds of experiences we want to take in. So the more multimodal we are, even enacting it, like sitting up a little straighter to be determined, or when you're having a conversation with your partner who's got a problem and more and more it looks like the problem is you, you know, instead of leaning back, whoa, yeah, sure, you know, which naturally you want to do, leaning in because it keeps your head in the game and your heart open and present, all the rest of that. So there's a place for enactments in the body as part of multimodality. Again, I'm just exploring how to help yourself learn one or more times a day from the good experiences, the useful opportunities for growth in life. Fifth fa- fourth factor, rather, is novelty, trying to see what's fresh to enrich an experience or, and personal relevance. And then A for absorb. Research shows you can prime, you can sensitize memory systems, including emotional memory systems, through intention and through sensing somehow that the experience is going into you. Perhaps visualizing it coming into you, like water into a sponge or the, or the warmth of a cup of hot cocoa into your hands on a cold day. With kids, I might talk about putting a jewel in the treasure chest of the heart. Or there's a kind of giving over to it, letting yourself budge to make room for this experience. So you're actually changed a little bit by it, for the better. And then optionally, if you want, the fourth step, L for link, is to be aware of both positive and negative at the same time. Maybe the positive is simply open, spacious awareness in which that negative experience arises. That itself is a kind of linking, if you think about it. Or to have a felt sense of of compassion for yourself, even as you're aware of something that's upsetting. That too is a kind of linking. Uh, Or you might have uh, a sense inside of gratitude or gladness that can help buffer a sense of loss about something in your life. And then over time, since neurons that fire together wire together, if you're aware of both of those at the same time, positive and negative, positive being more prominent, it can gradually associate with, soothe, ease, and eventually replace the negative. In effect, I think there are three ways to engage the mind. Three ways to practice. We can be with what's there. We can release the negative, And we can grow the positive. The Buddha summarized the last two under the heading of wise effort in the Noble Eightfold Path, where you're trying to reduce or prevent or abandon the negative, and you're trying to create, preserve, and grow the positive. There's a place for all three. If you use the metaphor of the garden, you know, you can witness the garden, you can pull weeds, or you can plant flowers. I'm focusing here on planting flowers. 
There's a place for all three. I think the first is the most fundamental because sometimes you can't release the negative and you can't grow the positive. But all you can do is ride out the storm. That's the best you can do. The best you can do is try to drop more into that witnessing process, a sense of open awareness, and just let things roll. Try to sense down to what's more vulnerable, more fundamental. You might investigate what's there, but you're not trying to change it. It's too much. And it's not time either. It's not time. The grief is too raw. Or the shock is too much there. Or you're too caught by that reactivated trauma material. You you just let it be as best you can. You don't add insult to injury. You try not to overreact to it. But then there's a natural rhythm where you shift into trying to release the negative, vent the feelings, or enough already, enough pain, touch it, move on, or uh, challenge the negative beliefs in your mind to release the negative, or uh, disengage more and more from that unwholesome desire, that addiction for drugs or alcohol or stimulation or whatever. And then it feels right. There's, again, this natural rhythm. You move into the third way, to engage the mind, where you start growing the positive. Now, to grow the positive, or even just to be with the mind, sometimes you have to grow the positive to be with it, right? Otherwise, you're not resourced to be able to be with your own experience. As they say in Alcoholics Anonymous, the mind is a dangerous neighborhood. Never go in alone. You know, you need to have resources inside to deal with the negative. But this framework, you know, let be, let go, let in. It's for me a very useful way to think about all this stuff, to ask yourself where you are in that process, both dealing with a specific issue as well as in your life in general. If you've jumped into the pulling weeds and planting flowers phase, the letting go and letting in, and it's not working for you, that's a clue. You've got to go back to let be. You have to feel the feelings more fully, especially sensing down to what's deeper, more fundamental, perhaps younger or more primal. And then when it feels right again, you can go back into letting go and letting in. And if you let go, try to let in. Because as any gardener knows, if you pull weeds and don't plant flowers, the weeds grow back. So in that context, you want to try it? Let's do a little practice here. So I'm going to use the heel steps. I won't do the fourth one. Um, as a way to just kind of have a little practice here about um, you know, growing resources inside. And I'll go after two resources that, for me, are very fundamental to uh, equanimity. Okay? And like any practice, it's an experiment. So the first one is, I invite you to notice already, probably in the background of awareness, is the sense that you're basically all right, right now. You're already all right, right now, in a basic way. In other words, most of the inputs into the brain originate from within the body. And most of the time, those inputs are telling your brain, much like the calls of a night watchman, all is well. There's enough air to breathe. Your heart's beating. You're not in agonizing pain. You're not about to die you're actually basically all right, right now. So I'll be quiet in a moment. 
so that you can start to bring this already present background sense into the foreground of awareness and start focusing on and helping yourself become increasingly absorbed in the felt sense that you're actually basically all right right now. This felt sense of being all right is oddly difficult to sustain. As we'll see later, I think Mother Nature doesn't want us to recognize that we're actually all right because animals back in the day that thought they were all right got eaten. So she wants us to be always a little edgy, even though we're actually all right. So it could take a little effort to keep resurfacing this experience of being all right right now. And as you find it, and I will be quiet, you can strengthen it, give yourself over to it, and get a felt sense of absorbing the sense of being fundamentally, basically all right, right now. Meditative terms, you are making the feeling of being all right your object of attention and helping yourself increasingly give yourself over to it. might have a related sense of needless anxiety falling away. You might kind of scan internally, is there any unnecessary guarding or bracing or sense of threat or worry? Seeing if you can let that fall away as you open to and rest increasingly in feeling all right, right now.
Okay, so letting that go, whatever was there, and we'll try this again. This time, instead of noticing and then foregrounding something already present, let's create something from scratch. So if you can, starting to call up feelings of compassion. And I'm going to broaden this to feelings of love. Friendliness, kindness, thinking of people that naturally call forth kindness or love from you or or compassion. Deliberately activating, having various experiences of love. And then as you get them going, enriching and absorbing these experiences. Sustaining these loving feelings, helping them become more intense, feeling them in your body. The sense of absorbing love, love sinking in more and more, becoming increasingly who you are. And be aware of what it's like for you to take in the good, to open to positive experiences and allow them to increasingly inhabit you. Is there any resistance to this? Are there any ways that you can notice you're becoming skillful with this process of learning, positive emotional learning? Okay, come on back. Most of the time, when we take in the good, when we register a beneficial experience to not leave money on the table, but instead actually gather a little bit of learning, a little bit of growth, a little bit of benefit from that experience, Most of the time when we do that, it's on the fly, it's informally. Ten seconds here, that's kind of a rough threshold. I think of it as a dozen or two dozen seconds most of the time. We walk outdoors, we see something that's pretty. And instead of just moving on to the next thing, 
We actually hang out with it for 10-ish seconds, a few breaths. Great. Or someone is nice to us. They smile. Wow. You know? Or a thing we worried about doesn't happen. Wow. There's an opportunity there to let something good land inside us. You know, again, a dozen or two dozen seconds at a time. You get something done. You accomplish something. A load of laundry. A tricky email. Huh. Letting it land. So most of the time, or, uh, yeah, most of the time we just kind of let it in. There's also a place for more formal practice, like at a meal, taking that moment of gratitude and letting it sink in. On first waking or just before sleep, or let's say at the end of a meditation or a therapy appointment or workout or yoga session, we look for times to let the good thing land. Later on I'll talk about what might be key experiences, key high-value experiences to really look for, and then when you find them or create them, really encourage the development of them or the internalization of them. I'll get into that after lunch. Um, So my point is, even though I took a little time here with this, you know, there's a place for formal practice, taking some time. Most of the time when we take in the good, it's on the fly. I personally experience more and more kind of my mind like a sticky net, and as kind of I move forward through time, or as time flows this way through me, you kind of like the good stuff is sticking without clinging. You know, it's just kind of sticking. And the trick is to open to and encourage wholesome experiences while simultaneously letting go of them. Then you avoid the pitfall of craving to them. Right? And that's a beautiful way to go through life. And also to have a little bit of inner guidance as to hey, what am I encouraging these days? What is a particular flower I'm trying to grow in the garden of my heart these days? Self-confidence, patience, recognition of impermanence, uh, courage, kindness for others. What what am I growing these days? Helps to know that, because then life is full of opportunities for that. Okay, so... I think what I'd like to do is to bounce fairly quickly through a little bit of framing material, do another practice, and have lunch. Sound okay? Okay? Good? Lunch. Everybody's a fan of lunch. All right. As Lao Tzu says, fundamentally, if we keep a green bough in our heart, if we look for opportunities to grow the good inside us, singing birds will come. You know, good, good things will come our way. Okay? Or I'm going to bounce forward a couple slides. As the Buddha taught, think not lightly of good, saying, it will not come to me. Drop by drop, synapse by synapse, the water pot is filled. Likewise, the wise one, gathering it little by little, fills oneself with good. Do not underestimate the power of these little moments. Life is made up of these little moments, which may or may not turn into brain structure. And the negative moments usually do. So to level the playing field, we need to tilt toward the positive because Mother Nature is tilted toward the negative for well-intended reasons because that's what helped our ancestors pass on genes that passed on genes. Okay. So when you look for the learning from today, whatever that is for you, or little moments in the days to come, Half a dozen times a day. That's kind of my own standard. Less than half a minute at a time. 
five minutes a day, tops. Look for those little opportunities to let the good lessons land, to let the good learning stick to your ribs. Which is a beautiful practice because it's basically about, you know, have it, enjoy it. Have those good experiences and enjoy them. Or to really summarize it, mo better, right? More episodes of registering useful experiences that grow the good inside. And uh, inside episodes, more depth of engagement. More neurons firing together so they really wire together. Okay? Now I want to frame this in an evolutionary. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.